is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large. And Ann, it's been quite a week for anybody who knows or cares about independent film in any particular fashion. I'm actually kind of glad that I'm going on vacation next week because if I was gone right now, I'd have a lot of catching up to do. So let's go through all this because I think you know there's a lot of things that are happening on on the level of the industry that we've been at attuned to for some time, but certain kind of immediate shifts in the conversation with certain news stories have really opened us up to what these changes are. You could look at it as tectonic shifts, you know, plates moving around, you know, given all the changes in the industry, you could look at it as uh, a rearranging of the deck chairs. (laughs) Well, that's always happening. Industry, which is so challenged and the big news today uh, yesterday rather was was bob bernie um leaving his post as um distribution and marketing chief at amazon studios which has been under new management under uh ex nbc executive um jennifer salky who we can assume is very strong on the tv side but she went as you know to uh sundance and made all these big buys and then late night came out and it's not even going to make $20 million at the box office after they spent 14 and, and another 33 to market and, and release it. And it's sort of shocking because this was a movie that not only did they spend a lot of money on it at Sundance, but this was the most obviously commercial available movie at Sundance. So their decision to spend a lot of money on it obviously set unrealistic expectations about how they might be able to find success with this movie. But also, I have to say, just to put things in context here, I got a little bit of deja vu on the Bob Bernie story because I remember I did a story a decade ago when he was let go from Picture House. And I was thinking about how basically any you company... The old New Line uh, slash uh, Picture House confab because he took yeah. that company with him later and, on. Well, eventually, right. He, yeah. They were sort of, they, they took the picture house logo. This was in a, in a big in studio. Pan's contract. Labyrinth era. Yeah. yeah, Pan's Labyrinth. It was a great run. And they also had Warner Independent was under, was under the That's same right. company. And it's that was also better. dropped. Yep. So it all kind of happened at once. But I was looking back on the stories from them and it, it, I felt this sense of deja vu where it's like you have these companies with deep pockets and a tremendous amount of promise when they hire people who are really invested in independent film and what they need to kind of build their lifespan in a very difficult market that's only gotten harder to you know sell movies in. And then at some point they take some crazy risk because uh you know maybe because somebody is in charge with different expectations or whatever it is. You could and- say that Jennifer Salky was was in fact um, a uh, well that's a what you're pointing out in the in the long term. Um, sort of uh, ecosystem of specialty film is that there was a period where a number of the studios shed uh, their 
uh, subsidiaries because they didn't think that they were going to be profitable enough to be worth the risks. And it's not the kind of business that they really want to be. Paramount got out of it. Warner Brothers got out of it. Um, and, and the ones left standing were, of course, Fox Searchlight, which is now over at Disney, and uh, Focus Features at Universal, and Sony Pictures Classics soldiering on, you know, know. with their theatrical release plans. And, um, and they have a, a number of, of movies coming out this year. So we'll see how they do. But, but you know, the newer companies like Neon and, and A24 um, and Amazon and Netflix uh, getting into theatrical, uh, you know, what, what, what I found interesting was the idea that it's, at first Netflix was so resistant to any kind of theatrical ahead of, um, I mean, we've gotten so used to what happened with Roma, where they had a three-week uh, uh, period before it went uh, to streaming, which of course the exhibitors are still angry about because it doesn't give them the windows that they want. But Amazon played ball. Bob Bernie and his distribution and marketing team played ball with, with, with the theater owners and made uh, the windows a priority. And now Jennifer Salke, because a lot of these movies haven't worked in the marketplace and they've been very expensive, this economic model may not be sustainable. And she's heading more in the in the Netflix direction. But the question is, what is the economic model that's trying to be sustained here, too? I mean, it's like marketing costs. If you go wide with a that's what happened here acquisition, that's the issue. If you spend that much to buy something, you have to get that money back. Right. So I guess the question. So the 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 it's important to point out that Amazon, right, was not getting into the movie business to make money on big theatrical releases in the first place they got into the business to win oscars so well, that they was, said that that was their plan which was to brand did. the movies and give them a higher profile so that more people on the site would watch them this was about boosting amazon prime this was about getting more eyeballs on amazon that was always the deal but right. it, what's so interesting about it is that netflix you know what their business plan is you get it you know Netflix is Netflix. You, you know exactly what the rules of the road are, what their goals are. Whereas Amazon has always been a little bit more um, hazy, and especially when it comes to film, not TV, but film. Jennifer Salke knows what she's doing on the TV side. She's going to go for broke with Lord of the Rings or whatever it is. But what the hell is the plan for film? We still don't know. Well, the thing that I, I always find fascinating about these challenges is that it's it's all about scale because if you're a small art house and you serve a, a set number of audiences throughout the year, you in some ways have a much more clear sense of what your metrics are for success. And in this particular case, you have a giant company that makes money off of many other things more than it'll ever make money off of movies. And so the question is, what what is the end game? And if you're going to go to a festival and spend money on a movie that money that you're spending should fit into that end game. I mean, they probably didn't need to buy a movie like Late Night, and they certainly didn't need to try and release well, it. Like a they big did, and I'll tell you why they did. What happened is that they had these management shifts. They had the Roy Price going out with the scandal, uh, the sexual harassment scandal, and then that was the leader. That was the guy who did have a vision. For better or for worse, Roy Price actually had a vision for what he was trying to accomplish there. And then you had... Um, he had the film side, they were chasing Oscars, they were doing auteurs and everything else. He had Ted Hope in production, and he had Bob Bernie, and two veteran indies who knew exactly what they were doing. It's just that the, 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 if, you, if you're in a position where you have nothing in the larder 
So, so Salky comes in, there's a big time frame there with Jason Rappel in charge and nothing going on and no, you know, things weren't getting made. So she had a short, she had to go into Sundance. This was the classic rookie play where you make a big play and you buy a bunch of stuff and you overspend for what it's worth. And she doesn't know that yet. I mean, this is a learning curve and, and she totally uh, made that, that kind of rookie play that everybody does when they're starting out and making a big splash. But it's, it's in some ways more fascinating to me that there's such a cultural disconnect between the different worlds at play here. I mean, to bring in a guy like Ted Hope, who I think is a brilliant and very important figure in independent film and has been for many, many years because of the films he's produced, you know, to bring him in and the kind of sensibilities he represents and the relationships he represents is, is just completely at odds with whatever the kind of bigger business end game is for somebody like Jennifer Salky, who I don't know and I haven't had conversations with, but I'm just saying it's this fundamentally different kinds of agendas at play here, which so makes you wonder just how much fun. Right. So she's basically confident when it comes to TV, but in film, she's, she's leaning on her team. And what I find interesting is that the team she's leaning on is Ted Hope and, and Jennifer Rappaport, who's uh, in charge of the more mainstream uh, production. And then um, this uh, guy, Matt Newman, who's been at Amazon for about six years, who's an MBA grad who doesn't really have that much film experience. And then they've, they've got Bob Bernie there over on the side, sort of doing his own thing with marketing and distribution. And, and not, not so much, I understand, in the conversation in, a, in the new Salky administration. So that may have played a part in his wanting to uh, take off. So meanwhile, on the, um, on the Disney Plus front, we got this interesting update about an actual poaching from Netflix with the director of original film, Matt Brondley, going, going over there. Yep. And uh, another person I don't, I don't know directly, but, I, but I've certainly been familiar with what he was doing. I mean, as a, as a director of original film and Netflix, you know, very important figure. So that's guy. Yeah, I mean, and, and sort of bringing that perspective into Disney Plus right now is going to be an incredibly powerful perspective. And I, I'm seeing these little hints about Disney Plus. Like this past week, I went to a event at the Museum of Moving Image where they honored National Geographic. They do this thing called the Moving Image Awards. And um, somebody mentioned as an aside that the film Science Fair, a documentary that premiered at Sundance, would be their first documentary on Disney Plus. Just a little reminder that, yes, National Geographic 2 is owned by Disney and can tap into this coming platform, you know. And so all this stuff about Amazon is also tied up in this bigger question of within sight is the, the real kind of battlefield of the streaming wars like well, we've ever seen. Well, the streaming wars leads to the other big hire this week, which was the head of Warner Brothers and Sana. So right. in the wake of Kevin Sujihara, who had his own Me Too scandal, off he went into, and, and he was a big hire at the time because a promotion because he was coming from the digital new media side of Warner Brothers, and that was a signal at the time. And Ann Svernoff is definitely about streaming because she launched over at BBC America their streaming site and did very well with it, uh, all about British movies and and content. So she they're they it, she was off the. Uh, list of obvious suspects. She was somebody who the headhunters found, and she ticks a lot of different boxes over the course of her career in terms of being super qualified 
to run uh, a studio that is in charge of film, television, interactive, and very much in charge of providing content for the streaming site. Another one where I'm sort of curious about what kind of cultural clashes will be in play. I mean, I, I was kind of amused when um, all those geeky DC fans reached out to her online That's and said, funny. congrats. On Twitter. <laughs> yeah, congrats on your job, <laughs> Lisa that, Snyder. I, I mean, God forbid. I'm that's, still not that's, sure that's that a real thing. That was the Kevin play, that whole thing. Of, let's do Batman versus Superman. And it was such a bad idea with, with years. trying to go up against Marvel and everything. Stupid ideas for years. And, and the thing is, it's like, the question is, okay, so you have somebody who's going to be smart and forward-thinking in terms of the realities of the market. What, what is her assessment going to be of all these tent poles that haven't been working for these guys, you know? I mean, Wonder Woman work. Well, Emmerich is in charge of film production, and she's presumably going to let him continue to do that because he's actually turned it around a bit. You can give him a lot of credit for the things that have actually been working over on the New Line side, um, you know, with It and stuff like that, and and uh, the Conjuring series and Annabelle and all this stuff. And then you have, and then you have um, Star is Born did really well you know That's they didn't true. make any mistakes with that, that, that was, well yeah that i mean that, it's not exactly a movie you can build a huge studio business model around but yeah, it did. those are the studios those are the kind i mean i what i like to, to think is that is that the studios that are going to be successful going forward because a lot of these sequels aren't working are the ones that understand that you have to have other kinds of movies in the mix well yeah and you also have to be attentive to what what opportunities there are in the streaming arena for the smaller or weirder stuff that might have a life and a reason to exist and how that could, you know, benefit the business as a whole and maybe not push that onto a bigger scale if it's not going to work that way. Right. Yeah. She's going to have to make calls and at least all these people are, I mean, over at Disney, it's fascinating to watch how that's playing out. By the way, um, they ha had a bunch of layoffs of Disney people and Fox people, but they also brought Fox people in and the Disney Fox marketing and distribution side is merging so that Disney is releasing Fox movies, but there's some Fox executives who are going to be in place to do that. And that was well, a that's surprise. not surprising. Yeah. I mean, a bit of a surprise. yeah, I mean, but you have to assume that with this kind of acquisition that there will be a little bit of shuffling and, and some consolidating of resources and so on and so forth. The question in, in there I would have is, you know, just how much can the Disney sensibility and the Fox sensibility play nice together? No question. You know? So that's an open question. In, in other news from the, you know, kind of question of, of theatrical versus other markets, there was this DGA rule today, which also ties into some early award season news. And you dug into that. So, so why don't correct. you lay it out for yeah, us? Yeah, so basically uh, the Academy uh, Board of Governors had a chance when they had their annual rules overhaul to uh, deal with that Spielberg versus Netflix question. Um, and, and they could have, if they chose to, uh, made a change and said that day and date was not acceptable and you had to have some kind of exclusive theatrical one run to be eligible for best picture. And they did not do that. They stuck with the rules that have been the same for about since 2012, one week in theaters required and uh, day and date is okay. Now Netflix has got chosen for various reasons lately and you know to go ahead of the streaming and give an exclusive anyway and Roma was in theaters uh, for months and Roma would have been eligible for the new DGA rules which are requiring one week 
uh, in theaters uh, exclusively before the, anybody, before you go to any other platform. And uh, that's a, they're just, but that makes sense. It's the, it's the directors. Directors want their movies to be in theaters. Well, so one week is not that dramatic, that but, you know. Well, one week is not that dramatic, but no. it is still going to eliminate some movies that are Well, notable. it's the same as anything else. If you want to be eligible for the DGA, you just have to play in theaters for a week. You know, it's like if you want to be eligible as a documentary that was probably produced by television, uh, if you want to be eligible for the Oscar, you have to get HBO or, or A&E or whoever it is to put your movie in theaters for a week. You know, I guess you know. I have more of a philosophical problem with this kind of stuff, which is just that, you know, at the end of the day, if you have a brilliant movie, not that this is necessarily going to happen, you have a brilliant movie that cannot afford to do that because maybe the day and date model is the only way that they're going to, you know, be able to see the light of day and, and, and survive to make another movie then, you know, what is that? It's just, it's almost like punitive to movies that are in that kind of situation. To their credit, and I, I give them a lot of credit for this, the uh, category that they added a couple of years ago of the first time director uh, award, they aren't requiring this for that. So if you're an emerging indie, if you're Joe, if you're Bo Burnham, for example, for, or, or someone like that, or, you know, the, the, the young Ryan Coogler or something, and you—it's your first film, and it's indie, and and it's it's not—they don't have to have that week run. Well, that's good. At yeah. least there is some there's some, and I and I do believe that. I mean, I I know from talking to various people, just as you do, that there are, you know, legit folks invested in in doing the right thing here. It's just when, once you start making these kinds of rules, it does get a bit tricky to figure out, you know, who who stands the most to lose, which actually opens up this. No, it's really mood, really. I mean, Netflix is showing movies in theaters anyway. They're probably going to do that with The Irishman. Yeah, let's talk about The Irishman. And about that this week. Um, and, and, and I find that, you know, I know that Scott Stuber, their head of original content movies, is, is out there talking to exhibitors. He's trying to figure out a way to, to improve, I think, on what they did with, with Roma, which was less than ideal, in, in fact. Um, they would have done better if they had been in, in major theater chains and places like the Arclight or, or the Pacific Theaters. Or, you know, they, they, they were stuck in the indie world, and I think they're going to be stuck in the indie world again. I don't have any reason to think that they're going to figure this out anytime soon. But the question with the Irishman also is it's like just, you know, how much, you know, if they don't give this thing a really big release, it feels like a major theatrical release, the backlash will be perhaps even more severe than Roma. I agree. It's Martin Scorsese. It's a big budget, big movie with visual effects. Holding us back from, I I suggested from what I've heard that they're not going to be able to get this in into festivals in time, but Netflix isn't saying yes or no. They're saying it's open. They're, they're keeping all the options open, but, um, I'm curious, you know, there was some speculation from Erwin Winkler that it would open around Thanksgiving, and uh, they haven't set a date yet. Well, it sounds like Marty gets what Marty wants, too. When he's finished, he's finished. And he's waiting for those ILM effects, the de-aging effects, to to be as perfect as they can be. Yeah, which, I mean, and of course, we don't know because we haven't seen just how perfect is perfect here. You know. It sounds like it's in it. I think he hasn't been through something like this before. Right. Uh, 
uh, I remember talking to Tim Burton um, about about the uh, Dumbo thing, where he's made this entire movie and he's literally sitting there twiddling his thumbs, waiting for at the last minute for the final iteration of of the animated character at the center of his movie yeah. to show up. You know, and so that's, uh, that's so silly, really. Yeah. So in other indie news, we should look at what's been happening in the festival world um, because we started out talking about Late Night and everything that happened there at, out of Sundance. And Sundance had a big story to just today, a little before we started recording, we found out that John Cooper, the director of the festival, who's been there for 30 years, is leaving. And lo- as the director. Right. So, but he's he has been a central Sundance figure. Absolutely. And and so so he is moving into a kind of an emeritus role, but basically he's not going to be running the festival anymore. And this, I think, from what I understand, is not a huge surprise that he's been sort of moving in this direction for a while. But I was surprised. I was. I know he bought a house up in Napa and everything, but he still had an apartment here in L.A. And he's just a. You and I know this. Um, I mean, as long as we've been around, he's been around. He's been a fixture. Um, I can't imagine Sundance without him, really. Well, also, it was a big deal when Cooper became director after Jeff Gilmore left because Jeff Gilmore was like Mr. Sundance for a while and and yet was less of a people person in the way that, that Cooper is. I mean, Cooper, it's like everybody loves Cooper. He's like such a smiley, fun guy and like that has been being the face of Sundance as that person is, is obviously very important. And, that, you know, I think Gilmore was a social guy, but what he did, social, was he, yes. he was very um, hands-on in the industry. Um, he got caught up in that. He got caught up in the, you know, what film is going to play on the opening weekend and what film is going to sell. And he was very invested in, in all of that, uh, measuring Sundance's success by its acquisitions market, which I don't think Cooper cared as much about. And he returned the festival to a a different kind of indie-focused integrity that I really Yeah, after Cooper left, or after Gilmore left, Cooper and and Trevor Groth, who became the new director of programming and has also left just a couple years ago, they launched the next section. They had, I remember the first slogan they had after Gilmore left was like, this is the new cinematic rebellion or something, something like that. He was responsible, Cooper, for not only Next, but, but the um, Frontier section. And, and he just he, he pioneered a lot of stuff. I, um, and, and they brought in, of course, uh, Kim Yutani this past year to replace Trevor, which is a big step, putting um, uh, some diversity into their ranks, which, which was good. And now there's going to be a lot of speculation about who's going to come in to replace Cooper and I have to say Trevor's name has come up um, as someone who might, you know, he might have been stymied by Cooper's longevity in terms of wanting to be, you know, move up and and now maybe he could. Well, so so Trevor Groth went over to, to to Thirty West and has been more a background figure since then. It's clearly influential in terms of how he's leveraged his contacts and so on and so forth on the financing level, but. Um, I don't know. In some in, in some sense, in some sense, it feels kind of like this is a very dramatic time with so many changes going on in the industry. And as much as Trevor Groth is great, bringing him in as opposed to somebody who who might seem like you know they have this vision of the future, or you know, I, I just I, I question whether it was the word. I'm sure. I mean, Noah Cowan is available. Who used to who recently stepped down again, surprisingly, from his very successful run at the San Francisco International Film Festival. Um, 
he's available. Um, uh, someone like Janet Pearson, who's running South by Southwest, who's hugely successful there, would seem to be uh, a very strong candidate as well. Do you have any other ideas? Well, you have people like Jacqueline Lyunga, who just came from AFI Fest over to Film Independent, but that would be a very um, immediate move. Cool. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it opens up this interesting question also about what Sundance should be and what film festivals should be right now. I think in, in, over in Europe, um, there is much more of a, a, a clarity to how festivals work. They get a lot of government support. You know, the culture is different. In the U.S., I, I do feel like we need to clarify the role of film festivals. And, on, and to some extent, that needs to come from Sundance, the most famous, most symbolic festival in this country. And so it's a real question of who should be, who best sort of epitomizes what film in America is right now. And, you know, should, should it be seen as a beacon for the industry as it became after sexualizing videotape or all that stuff? Or should it recede from that? And become something else as movies become something else in our culture. That's I think a it's a fascinating a good way of looking at it. I, I have to say, when I was at Palm Springs Shore Fest this past weekend, I was reminded of how powerful Sundance is, not only in the way you were just discussing, you know, in terms of narrative films uh, being introduced into, into the culture, but also I'm very aware of how powerful they are with documentaries and shorts, too. And, and they are just a huge yes. gatekeeper, a huge curator, an enormous influence on our industry and and with all the workshops that they do and the ways that they nurture filmmakers the michelle satter side of it all um it's it's a powerful powerful place and they've done a lot of good stuff i mean what the the shorts programs at sundance are amazing i mean it's just it's it's incredible how how, you know how well curated certain sides of this festival that don't get the attention of say a late night cell just how strong that is, or New Frontiers, or VR, and all that stuff. So, you know, all that needs to really lead the way. So, in other indie news uh, that just came up around the same time as the Cooper News, some, some a very sad update with the uh, the loss of Ben Barinholtz, um, somebody who you knew better than I did, and a lot of people in the indie film world uh, were were impacted by him either because they knew him or because they knew his work. I mean, Ben. You know, from discovering people like David Lynch with Eraserhead and the Coen brothers to um, moving into filmmaking later in his life. Really fascinating and important figure who I think on some level, at least from my perspective, you know, and I wrote the initial obit, kind of represents what it has taken to push more daring works and filmmakers with really singular visions to as many people as possible and, and really make those careers happen and make that culture survive. Yeah, you had some real direct encounters. I grew up in, in Manhattan and I went to the Elgin, which he managed, um, as you pointed out, and you're very good, Obit. Um, I, I, uh, I, I stayed overnight at the Elgin in high school to see War and Peace, the Russian six-hour War and Peace, and it was like a family thing. We all went together. Um, and then there was a day I remember going alone to see Ken Russell's The Devils and the Music Lovers and a double bill. And I walked out of that theater in a state of insanity as if I was tripping, you know, back in the day. I was very upset, very overwrought, crying. Um, that's the power of cinema. And Ben Barinholtz understood it better than anyone. And there are a lot of people in our industry that I grew up with, people like Tom Prassus, who's at Sony and Pictures Classics and Sam Kitt and, and John Pearson and a, a number of other people who were very, uh, Eamon Bowles, very affected by him. Carrie Rickey, 
Um, he was a lovely man. He was charming. He told great stories. You could hang out with him. He always had a beautiful, smart woman on his arm. Um, he was one of those people that just made you smile when he was around him, and he loved movies. And the thing that I think is really fascinating about, you know, the, or, and also valuable about what you're describing is midnight movie culture that he, he deserves credit for sort of fostering, but also just generally speaking, the, the value of, of the movie going experience, having something that you cannot capture in another context. And, you know, you look at when, you know, a crazy movie breaks out, like when Mandy surprised everyone by having an actually successful theatrical run that wasn't even planned by, the people who bought the movie and it's like yes this is still something there is still potential for movies to have you know kind of lives in, in in the theater that are defined by what it means to gather there and, and in some ways he kind of he epitomized that spirit in, in many different ways and also in the way that he sort of diversified his portfolio sometimes you got to be a distributor or an exhibitor and sometimes you got to make the stuff or produce it or whatever you know, that I think somebody called him like the godfather of Midnight Movie, the Pope of the Midnight Movie or something like that. Well, he was yeah. 83 when he died. He was in Prague, uh, surrounded by friends. I loved that, uh, that, that moment uh, vis visually, um, of thinking of that. And I also loved that he made his, you know, feature narrative debut after having made some documentaries at age 80. <laughs> you yeah, know? take that, James you know, Sheamus. This is one person who wrote to us, because we sent out, a, somebody wrote back and said, he was the man I always wanted to be. You know, he was the model of who I wanted to be, and I totally get that. So um, in terms of other news this week, it's I feel like we could just be talking about these things indefinitely, but since I'm on vacation next week and uh, we both made time for it, I do feel like we have to get into the Spider-Man side of things because, you know, the news cycle keeps going and big Marvel movies aren't going away anytime soon. So... What's, What's interesting about Spider-Man is because I went to the premiere last night. Uh, they did a big number uh, over at the Chinese and, and a big party on Hollywood Boulevard afterwards with an enormous, um, you know, inflated <laughs> Spider-Man balloon flying yeah. above, above everything. You, you know, and Chris Miller and Phil Lord were there who had done the other Spider-Man uh, animated movie uh, that won the Oscars. They they were taking pictures of it from the point of view of the crotch <laughs> of the, the, the Spider-Man. And Tom Holland and Jake Gyllenhaal and, and Kevin Feige and all these people were, were holding court. But the idea is that this one at least supports a separate studio for once. You know, it's Sony for now. Uh, it's a Marvel movie and Kevin Feige made it pretty clear that he was in charge. But Amy Pascal was also on it, and Tom Rothman was also taking credit for it. But the Pascal side of it is kind of fascinating because I recently caught up with the big picture, Ben Fritz's book, and a big part of that is um, Sony, Sony. And, and, and Spider-Man itself and the many different, you know, the challenges they had rebooting this thing twice before getting it right. And, the, you know, so many different weird moments, like when Tobey Maguire wanted too much money and they had some sort of contingency de deal, ironically, with Jake Gyllenhaal, who's now a character in this movie. No spoilers, but a major character in this movie. Also. So it's, it's, he could have been Spider-Man and now he has another role to play. And now we, there are some other people who, who show up in the movie who, who also remind you of earlier versions of spider-man and and now she, she's finally finishing up her deal with sony and it's it's just kind of interesting that, off to universal yeah as she goes off to universal spider-man becomes 
you know, just fully immersed in everything that's going on in, in, in Marvel and probably will be one of the more prominent characters now that, you know, Endgame is behind him. I thought the movie was okay. I thought it was, it was, it's fun. It has the same loose energy of, of the first one. I, I thought it was a little more uneven and some parts of it were a little underwritten, but it's very, you know, it's, they found the right guy to play Spider-Man. He really. Oh, Tom Holland is great. He's, he's adorable. And I, and I, I think they have a good handle on the uh, Spider-Man, the younger Spider-Man fan base. And, you know, his best friend being with the pretty blonde girl and Zendaya and all the, the characters are delightful. And, and uh, John Favreau himself is this sort of teddy bear figure, uh, the, the connection to the old Tony Stark, you know, the whole question of Endgame and the time frame and the blips is taken care of pretty carefully. And, uh, and then you go crazy with the visual effects. It's what you expect, but it's, it's got a charming sort of teen rom-com vibe to it. Yeah, well, I mean, so did the last one. The The thing that was kind of fascinating, or that well, I'll tell you, the thing I really enjoyed was seeing Zendaya again because Euphoria has started on HBO, and she's so so great on that. It's a very edgy show. It's got kind of a kid's vibe to it. And in this one, I, I think they still haven't quite figured out what they want to do with this character, but you could see her acting the hell out of every possible moment she can give some depth to to what they've given her and it's it's great she's a really great now that they have a good mary jane in the marvel universe i hope they keep building that character the same way they build up peter parker or anybody else and aunt may could use some work too honestly agree so there's a lot of stuff that that, that you know hopefully will continue to develop as we figure out whatever the hell Marvel wants to do here, but um, you know it's it's certainly not a bad place to leave off with whatever this this third cycle of the MCU is. But uh, it's going to be Fourth of July next week, and I'm sure people are going to movies. I would say you don't have to go see Spider Man next week. You could wait and go see some other stuff that could use your help. But what would you say people should go see with their families over the holidays? Well, I was just looking at Twitter where there's a lot of of very negative. Uh, <laughs> feedback on yesterday, I have to say, and I'm just going to come right out and say it. I am a Richard Curtis fan. Everyone, and that is, I love Richard Curtis and I love Danny Boyle's uh, treatment of his screenplay and I love this movie and I think a lot of people will enjoy it, especially if you love the Beatles the way I do, which, which is hard. I, I love the Beatles more than just about anything in the whole world. <laughs> I'm just one of those crazy people who play Beatles rock band whenever I get the chance. But um, I would say uh, yesterday, I would say uh, coming up is Maiden, which is a great uh, documentary uh, about a the first all-female yacht crew to uh, compete in this round-the-world yacht race. It is one of the most fun, gratifying crowd-pleasers I've seen in quite a while. And I would recommend Toy Story 4 as well. Um, and then there's Midsummer, which comes on July 3rd, which is the Ari Aster movie. Yeah, so I would say definitely it's worth your time. It's not perfect, but it's it's got so much vision to it. It's, it Ari Aster is one of those guys where it's like, I just, I'm watching that movie and I want to root for him, even if like he doesn't always succeed because it's just, it feels like this movie's just so rich with the energy of a, of a director who wants to try stuff. And it's it's got this creepy vibe that continually pulls you in with the filmmaking. Totally. I mean, 
it's a folk horror exactly movie. Sure but it's, what's going to happen? You have some ideas right. about where it might go, but you don't know how it's going to get there. That's what's know. fun. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and so so yeah, I would say definitely make make time to see a movie like that. It's it's just it's, it's so gorgeous. Art. It's just gorgeous filmmaking. This guy's a really impeccably controlled director who knows exactly what he's going for. It's and really I also cool. just wonder, um, you know, yeah, and Emma Pugh is great. If somebody says they're not a horror movie fan, yes, it's a it's a freaky movie, and there are parts that might, but it's not just it's not really. It's, it's uh, yeah, I hate these kind Hereditary of. Hereditary is a good comparison. I think it's in the same league. Yeah, I mean, but it's also it's a it is a movie about a breakup, you know, and I think it taps into those emotions as a drama in ways that you know a lot of other kinds of movies with this kind of backdrop wouldn't necessarily mine quite yes, as let's well. Let's say that it exists in the real world to begin with, and the characters have real psychological depth to them. Um, right. It's not just a, it is, on some level, you have, a, <laughs> you have a group of characters that show up in this benign-looking, exotic place that you know, on some level, things are going to go wrong, and maybe you worry that some of these characters might not uh, survive, but it isn't that, you know, trope of stereotype, stereotype, down they go, down they go. There's some stuff going on between those characters. There's real interactions and depth to it. That's what's good about it. So next week I'll be out. So we're going to take a bit of a breather and hope people have a chance to kind of catch up on some of the movies we've been talking about. And then when uh, we get back, We'll have all kinds of things to dig through. The Lion King, Tarantino's movie's finally going to come out, all that good stuff. So hey, much more Eric, to come. Tell them what you're doing. You're going to Chile oh, really? for a purpose. Yeah, I was trying to be covert about it so people didn't stalk me there because I'm really off the grid. But I am, yes, going to uh, Chile where uh, I've been there before. I had a great time a couple years ago. But I'm going to the northern region to a coastal city called La Serena, where uh, I'll be at the center of the shadow of an eclipse. There's a major, uh, really cool uh, uh, solar eclipse that's happening on July 3rd, and or on July 2nd, excuse me. And um, it's a very narrow shadow that the, in order to be in the direct path of the eclipse, you have to be either in this northern part of Chile or certain parts of Argentina. And so they're expecting like 350,000 people to be out in, the, in this desert area and it's just kind of fascinating i have some in-laws who are really into chasing eclipses but i've always been kind of a science geek on the side anyway and so the opportunity to see this kind of astrological phenomenon is kind of the ultimate you know nature escape because it's like you're going to see a show but it's it's a nature show so So do you camp uh you don't camp we're going to stay in the town and then you just kind of drive out there it's technically the winter time there but it's not it's not cold it's kind of mild so Hopefully we'll get it. We'll get a good show. You know, I I kind of relate to these things the same way I relate to movies. You know, it's like the difference is you can only see it one time, so you kind of have to be there for it. But I I've always loved looking through a telescope the same way I like sitting in a dark room and watching moving images on on the screen. So there is some connectivity there, and um, hopefully I'll have some good stories when I get back. Eric, I want you to have a wonderful time, and I do envy you your ability to disconnect from the grid which is a, a yes. skill i do not possess <laughs> like i said please don't stalk me <laughs> if you anybody who knows how to find me will, will be able to find me hopefully nothing terrible happens that i need to uh 
you know, weigh in on. But, you know, fingers crossed in the meantime, I'll, I'll be I'll be down there and um, I'll be back soon enough. So I hope you enjoy the holidays. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.